Welcome to UCI Law Talks from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join us on Twitter at UCI Law. Good afternoon, everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this presentation in UCI Law's COVID-19 and the Law series. Today, we'll be discussing a timely and very important topic, voting rights and election integrity at the time of COVID-19. Before I introduce our moderator, I wanna recognize the UCI Law team that assisted in developing today's program. They are Rebecca Bergeron, Jillian Henry, Dennis Sloan, and Marianne Soden. Thank you so much for all of your efforts in bringing us together this afternoon. And we are very fortunate to have two UCI Law faculty members with us today, Professors Rick Hassan and Henry Weinstein. And they'll be introduced by our moderator, Veronica Gray. So it's now my pleasure to introduce her. Veronica Gray is a partner at the law firm of Nossaman LLP, where she chairs the Employment Practice Group. She's a prominent trial attorney with more than four decades of experience representing privately held companies and public entities in a broad array of employment and labor-related matters, including issues related to the implications of COVID-19. Ms. Gray also prosecutes and defends unfair competition and trade secret matters. Ms. Gray is a sought-after speaker across the country on a variety of topics and on trends in the industry that impact employers, including the prevention of sexual harassment and discrimination, the elimination of unconscious bias, and defending and avoiding wage and hour class actions. Ms. Gray has been recognized for her important and impactful work. She was named a super lawyer by Los Angeles Magazine and was recognized by Orange County Metro Magazine as one of the region's top-rated employment lawyers. I could go on and on introducing Ms. Gray, uh, but I want you to get to the program, and so please look at her full biography that was included with the program. Finally, Ms. Gray is not only a brilliant lawyer, but she's also a brilliant photographer, and you can see some of her photography behind her. Her work focuses on street photography and close-up images of indigenous people across the world, and one of her compelling photos was recently chosen from thousands of international entries to be included in an exhibit in Russia featuring 50 women street photographers. So you can view her work at veronicagrayphotography.com. I am so honored that Veronica is a member of UCI's Board of Visitors, and she's been an incredible partner and friend both to me and to the law school. I'm so looking forward to this presentation on voting rights and election integrity at the time of COVID-19. And Veronica, I now turn the session over to you. Thank you so much, Dean Richardson, for your very kind remarks. And it is truly my pleasure to moderate this panel as a member of the Law School's Board of Visitors. These are extraordinary times, and this is such a timely and important topic. Just before I introduce our distinguished speakers, as a reminder, we're, we are reserving about 15 to 20 minutes at the end of the conversation for your questions, so please use the uh, Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. If you've already submitted a question during the registration period, we already have those. Please don't re-enter those. Thank you. Now, turning to our distinguished faculty, Professor Richard Hassan is Chancellor, Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree with highest honors from UC Berkeley and a JD MA and PhD in political science from UCLA. Professor Hassan is a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation. He's a prolific writer. He is the author of over 100 articles on election law issues, published in numerous journals, Harvard Law Review, Stanford Law Review, Supreme Court Review, his op-eds and commentaries have appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, and Slate. And you will frequently see him as a guest speaker on many of the new shows. You may want to follow his election law blog because this is such a dynamic area that we are dealing with. 
His most recent book, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy was published by Yale University Press in early February of this year. It is currently available at Amazon. At the end of February, Professor Hassan hosted a conference at UCI Law. Can democracy survive the 2020 elections? Following the conference, he convened a bipartisan, diverse group of scholars who formed an ad hoc committee for 2020 election fairness and legitimacy. The report issued at the end of April provides 14 recommendations of specific actions that should be taken now to minimize the chances of an election meltdown in November. The report will be addressed during the conversation today. A copy is also available on the UCI Law website. Professor Hassan will be interviewed by Professor Henry Weinstein, who is Professor of Lawyering Skills at UCI Law with expertise in media law. Professor Weinstein earned a Bachelor of Arts in History and a Juris Doctorate from the University of California, Berkeley, and has undertaken postgraduate work at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. He has worked for the Los Angeles Times, New York Times, San Francisco Examiner, and the Wall Street Journal. You can say he's a newspaper kind of guy, and has written more than 3,000 stories, reporting on the ground in 36 states, District of Columbia, and Canada. As a journalist, he wrote frequently about election law issues, notably providing extensive coverage of the legal battle leading up to the Supreme Court's decision in Bush versus Gore in 2000. Professor Weinstein, we are looking so much forward to your interview with Professor Hassan, and I turn the program over to you. Thank you very much, Veronica, and I want to thank everyone for joining us for this webinar today. Today is the third program I have done this year on election law issues with Professor Hassan, who I've known for 20 years, and I am rather confident that it will not be the last one. I want to make just a couple brief introductory remarks before I start asking Rick questions. Um, I can't, and I don't think anyone can overstate the importance of the right to vote. The right to vote is perhaps the most fundamental right in our country because it is the gateway to many other rights. If you don't have the right to vote, you don't have a vote, you don't have a voice in a democratic society. In fact, people have been murdered in this country attempting to secure the right to vote. 20 years ago, the nation got a stark wake-up call that our nation's voting systems were far from perfect as a result of controversies in the presidential balloting in the state of Florida. And I suspect that all of you know that the word hanging chads became a part of the American lexicon at that time. Since that time, Rick has spent a good deal of his waking hours working on ways to improve voting processes in this country with two major focuses, maximizing access to voting and maximizing the integrity of the voting process. Rick, your committee formulated 14 important practical suggestions on how to conduct an election during a crisis. For those of you who have not had a chance to read it yet, all you have to do is Google, um, is to Google the fair election report in a crisis Fair elections during a crisis in Google, and it will pop up on your screen. The committee's recommendation concerns four major areas relating to law, media, politics, and technology. We don't have time to focus on all 14 today, so we're going to zone in on some that seem the most pressing. Rick, I'd like to start with recommendation one, which says states should adopt reforms to improve the absentee ballot and provisional balloting process both in terms of access and securities. Mail-in ballots have been used in this country for years, including particularly by members of law enforcement. Um, and it seemed like something that would be particularly important given that the country's in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. But all of a sudden, mail-in voting seems to have become controversial in some quarters. So tell us a bit about mail-in voting and what your committee came up with in that regard. Sure, and before I... Uh go further, let me just thank um, Veronica and Song, uh, and also uh, Marianne and Jillian and Rebecca and Dennis and the staff at UCI Law for putting on this program and this series. 
And thanks to you, Henry, uh, for taking the time to do this again. I, I feel like every time we talk, there's another crisis. Uh, the first one was after the Iowa Dem Democratic Party debacle. And then um, the next one was uh, coronavirus. And now, of course, we have um, social protests and um, the situation seems to be very dynamic. So uh, I feel like we have a lot of new material to cover. And, and that's really unfortunate for our country that <laughs> we're, we're jumping from one crisis to another. Um, at the end of my book, Election Meltdown, um, which describes why American confidence in the election process has been declining, um, I, I kind of was flailing for what can be done in the short term, what could be done to ensure that the upcoming election is going to be successful because we are in a period of high polarization. We have problems with how elections are administered in particular parts of the country in terms of the, the competence. Uh, there's a lot of churn about voter fraud and voter suppression. There's a lot of incendiary rhetoric about stolen and rigged elections. Um, some of that's coming from the president, but it's not only about the president. It, it goes much beyond that. And so I convened this group of uh, scholars in those four areas. You mentioned law, politics, media, and tech. Diverse group, ideologically diverse and diverse in other ways to try to come up with, you know, what's the common ground we can find? There were lots of things I would have put in the report if I was writing it myself, but we're looking for what, what were the common ground. And uh, when we started writing the report, few people had thought COVID-19 was going to be a major issue in the United States. By the time we had issued the report, it was a major issue in the United States. And so we reworked uh, and, and expanded some of our, our um, uh, recommendations. And the first recommendation is about making sure that there is a multiplicity of ways for people to vote in November, which means not only voting by absentee ballot, but including voting by absentee ballot. Now, why is that? Well, because polling places are not necessarily safe. Uh, in order to um, hold effective in-person polling place voting, you're gonna have to have social distancing, you're gonna have to clean machines, you're gonna have to have poll workers who are willing to work there and election judges. And since 60 to 70% of poll workers uh, tend to be older Americans who are most susceptible to the virus, what we've seen in a bunch of primaries is poll workers pulling out. So in the April 7th Wisconsin uh, primary, which was a very controversial primary. We'll probably get into talking about that in more detail. In Milwaukee uh, County, 175 out of 180 polling places were closed. So mail-in balloting is going, if the virus in the fall looks anything like it does now, mail-in balloting is going to be a, a, an incredibly important part of that um, way that people are going to vote. And there's a danger that people will be disenfranchised if they can't uh, vote by mail, either because they're going to be uh, lack, lack immunity and be afraid to go to the polling place, or maybe because the lines at the polling places will be so long because uh, there'll be fewer polling places and um, fewer workers and uh, you know, more demand uh, that if you try to show up at the polling place, you're going to be in trouble. We've seen this in some of the primaries. So we agreed as a committee that, uh, that mail-in balloting needs to be put in place. It needs to be adequately funded. Congress needs to come up with much more money They've come up with $400 million. They need to come up with billions of dollars, somewhere between two and $4 billion for increased costs related to the, uh, uh, making the election safe. Um, and a piece of that is mail-in balloting. You're right that mail-in balloting is not new. Um, it goes back to the Civil War. It even goes back before the Civil War when soldiers who were away from home uh, were able to vote. In most recent elections, about a quarter of the country voted by mail. Uh, so that's a very significant amount. In five states, including the uh, re heavily Republican state of Utah, they have all mail balloting, right? So uh, everyone votes by mail unless for some reason you have a disability or otherwise want to go to a vote center, you have that option, but it's, it's essentially vote by mail. In about two thirds of states, including those five, anyone can vote without an excuse uh, by mail if they'd like to. That uh, includes California, where about 60 to 70% of people have been voting by mail. And in the last third of states, people have to come up with an excuse. And there's been a lot of litigation, which we can also talk about, about what should count as an excuse uh, under COVID conditions for this. But, uh, you know, historically, mail-in balloting was used more by Republicans than by Democrats. <coughs> in recent years, Democrats have started uh, a big push towards early voting, both in-person early voting and, and absentee voting. And... This has created about a parity between Democratic and Republican use of vote by mail. I think until the president started making claims that vote by mail was um, full of fraud, 
this was not a major issue. And those states that have all male voting do not see great cases of fraud. And I could talk about how we know about the numbers of fraud and you know, how are things detected and all of that. There are some pretty famous instances of fraud uh, with absentee ballots. The most recent notorious one involved a Republican candidate's uh, campaign manager or campaign organizer in uh, Bladen County, North Carolina, uh, tampering, allegedly he's, he's been indicted but has not yet been convicted, tampering with absentee ballots, uh, the ta stealing ballots uh, 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 or uh, voting ballots or destroying ballots. And the, the tampering was serious enough that the bipartisan North Carolina Board of Elections called a new election uh, and they had to redo that election. Uh, but these are pretty rare instances. Ordinarily, what we're thinking about when we're talking about absentee balloting is balancing the small risk of fraud against the great convenience to voters who want to vote from home. Now the balance is different because we're balancing not just that convenience on the benefit side, but health and safety of voters and the ability of voters to be able to vote in an effective and safe way. That said, there are not only issues with fraud related to ballots, there are issues with ballots being counted. And in our recommendations, we talk about this. Uh, in some, You're much more likely to have your ballot tossed if you vote by absentee than if you vote uh, in person, because you might make a mistake. Your, your signature might be found not to match. You might forget to sign, as Melania Trump did a few elections ago and her ballot was tossed. Uh, one of the things we say is, you know, states should give opportunities for voters to be able to know if their ballot's being tossed. And um, although it wasn't a committee recommendation, I certainly believe that voters should be given the ability to cure their ballots. Uh, that is come up, uh, you know, prove, yeah, this is me. This is my signature has just changed. So it's a lot of churn about this issue. Uh, it's already starting to have an effect where Republicans in the primary seem to be using vote by mail less. And I'm, I'm actually worried that the rhetoric from the president is going to disenfranchise his own voters because if he's telling them that's not a safe way to vote and they don't feel comfortable voting in polling uh, places, then maybe they won't vote at all. And, and really, it is a safe and uh, fair way to conduct an election. Uh, I, I wouldn't say we should move to all vote by mail across the country in November. That's not really possible. Uh, but we're going to have much more of it. We, if we can get adequate funding for it, hopefully states can do a better job of it. Rick, to the extent that there will still be in-person voting, how important is it to have a paper ballot or at the very least some kind of a, an electronic trail of, of how the person actually voted? Uh, we think that's crucial uh, in our report. Um, uh, we say that um, there should be some paper record of how someone voted. Now, I should be clear, just to back up, in our country, we don't have a, a, a single election system. As, as everybody knows, if you live in New Jersey, it's going to look different than if you live in Hawaii. Uh, and in fact, if you live in one part of California, the voting uh, machinery may look different than another part of California. Right. Um, some machines are electronic. Some you're using a, pen, a pencil, like you're filling out the SAT, um, uh, bubbling in a, a circle. Fortunately, we don't have those punch card machines that you talked about uh, and that we talked about uh, 20 years ago in Bush versus Gore, those bad machines for uh, voting that they had in Florida, California, and elsewhere. Um, but, you know, the, the, the problem with a lack of paper that is a fully electronic system, one that doesn't produce uh, a, a piece of paper that can be recounted is, uh, you know, I think threefold, uh, you know, in terms of thinking about it for, for the, the upcoming election. Number one, um, the National Academies of Sciences, as we cite in our report, unanimously concluded that we don't have the technology to have a non-hackable form of electron fully electronic voting. Uh, number two, even if you wanted to adopt electronic voting, um, jurisdictions are not ready to do it quickly because uh, it takes time to ramp these things up. And you know, you're talking about lots of jurisdictions that uh, where the election administrators are starved of resources. Some jurisdictions, I believe, are still using Windows 95 software. So you know, to move to a fully electronic system is a problem. Uh, I think we're going to talk later about what happened this week in Washington D.C., where they accepted some ballots by email. Really problematic. So number one, it's not secure. Number two, not enough time to ramp it up. And number three, and this is key, and this was a, a focus of my book, Election Meltdown, is um, without a piece of paper. Uh, voter, voters may not accept the results, right? We're already so polarized. We're already so suspicious. The president is saying things about voter fraud. If a computer announces that the result is, you know, candidate X gets this amount, candidate Y gets that amount, 
and there's no way to verify that, uh, you know, other than, you know, some zeros and ones and some computer code, who's going to believe it? We need physical forensic evidence that could actually be examined. After Bush versus Gore, when that thing was all over, all those Florida ballots, the six million of them or whatever they were, they went to uh, Chicago to be recounted uh, by uh, the, the uh, NORC uh, organization. There was something physical to count so you could actually look at the evidence. So uh, I think it would be terrible. The, uh, I think I, I said this on a, I was on a recent um, uh, panel with someone who supports uh, moving to electronic voting. I said, I think it would be the biggest mistake we could make. And our report says no online return of ballots. It's fine to deliver ballot materials to voters if that's the only way to get it to them like sending them a ballot if necessary, that they could be filled out. But it has to be a piece of paper that's returned and the ballot, the piece of paper has to be the actual record of the vote. Uh, so lots of places have these new electronic machines that, that are called ballot marking devices. You vote on a touch screen. This is how it is in Los Angeles County, but it produces a piece of paper and it's that paper that is going to be counted. Uh, and that's that paper that can be recounted. There are all kinds of issues about counting the barcode versus counting the the actual names that are on the paper. But in the end, if there's a dispute, we could always look at those names on the paper. So that's, I think we really need that. Right. So Rick, since you already mentioned it, why don't you just briefly touch on what happened this week with Washington DC's attempt to use email voting? So let me put this in the broader context uh, of um, what's happening with absentee balloting in the primaries. Uh, one of the things that we've noted uh, in state after state uh, having these delayed primaries during the pandemic is that requests for absentee ballot are way up, way up. How, how way up? I'm gonna give you from Georgia. In Georgia in the 2016 primaries, 36,000 people in the state of Georgia voted by uh, absentee ballot. Uh, as of two weeks ago, there were one and a half million requests for absentee ballots, right? So we're talking about a huge demand and um, what we're seeing in state after state, some states are doing better than others, and many states are doing very poorly right now, is meeting that demand. So what has to happen in most states is if you want to vote by absentee ballot, you have to fill out a request. You mail that request or you uh, can sometimes online request that ballot, and then that request has to be processed and the ballot has to be mailed out to you. You have to get that ballot in time to send it back by the deadline, which is often either receipt of the ballot by election day or postmark by election day. And so uh, in DC, as in a number of other places, there, was, uh, there were a number of people who never got their absentee ballots. And um, there were very long lines. And because of the protests and the social unrest, there were curfews. So there were people online who were being told they needed to leave, even though what they were doing by law, they were allowed to stay online and vote. And so uh, the DC Board of Elections seeing this, you know, all of these people who did not get um, their absentee ballots in the mail allowed people to cast their votes by email. I think it's a terrible precedent. Uh, I, I'm glad it didn't happen in a national election where the stakes were high because um, that might have violated uh, the law and then there'd be a question about those voters and whether their vote should count and whether they would be disenfranchised and really a disaster. Not only is voting by email a disaster, but to do it on the fly at the last minute, terrible precedent. I, and I talk about this in election meltdown when a similar thing was done uh, to deal with a hurricane uh, in Florida. And uh, what I said uh, in the book is that um, Florida had already enacted procedures. Here are the emergency procedures if we have a hurricane. And they explicitly excluded voting uh, online. And yet this election administrator decided to take it in his own hands. That's really dangerous when you start changing the rules uh, without authority. If, uh, you know, what happens in a close election? What's gonna happen with those ballots? It's just a recipe for post-election fighting in the case of a close election. And I don't wanna see that happening in November. Right, so to do these things effectively, as you've already alluded to, is a question of resources. And you mentioned the fact that Georgia already has an astronomical increase in the number of uh, requests for absentee uh, ballots, and that's just in, in the primary. And, uh, and of course, in, at this point, there's not much question who's gonna win any primary in Georgia, but for the general election, you may have many, many more. And the part of the question is here, does the state have enough paper? Does the state have enough resources to send out the ballots? How do they send them out? Which neighborhoods get them first? That could all be very important about whether people get their ballots on time to cast them on time, right? 
Yeah, and let me just disagree with the premise of your question, because even though the presidential primaries are over, uh, you've got a very contested race for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate, for example, uh, between uh, Doug Collins uh, and uh, um, uh, Kelly Loeffler. Loeffler, yes. Her name right? right. So, uh, yeah, so there are some important things on the ballot and, you know, local races and, you know, ballot measures and all kinds of things. So these primaries, we can't just dismiss them just because the presidential primary is over. Um, there's a lot of lead time. You know, one of the things I've been talking about is flattening the absentee ballot request curve. The idea is that if, if your state requires you to request an absentee ballot, then you need to do it as soon as possible uh, because we're, we're seeing this backlog. You know, you're going to need more scanners, right? If a state requires signature matching uh, in the big states uh, where they use this a lot, they'll have machines that can match signatures and then knock out the ones that look like they don't match and allow humans to compare them. But it's much, much faster. So those machines cost a lot of money. You need to hire workers. Are you going to put all those workers in a room? You're going to have to have social distancing, right? The planning needs to happen now. And this is one of the recommendations we make in the report. It's like, now is the time. You can't think about this stuff in September. Remember, under uh, federal law, the ballots have to be prepared and mailed out to overseas and military voters 45 days before the election. So we already have to get this going. Um, and unfortunately, because a lot of these primaries have been delayed, uh, you end up having two elections, one after the other. So Georgia's not having its primary until next week, and then they have to turn around and start preparing for November. Uh, you know, and we saw, it, we saw big problems in Pennsylvania, big problems in Maryland, the congressional, you know, Maryland, uh, you know, uh, uh, the congressional delegation today, uh, made up of, um, I think, almost all Democrats, uh, called for um, an investigation into why the Maryland uh, election was so botched. So, you know, one after the other, big problems. And, if, and as you mentioned, so important, turnout is just a fraction of what it's going to be in November because people are very uh, polarized. They're very motivated to vote uh, on one side or the other and uh, demand's gonna be very high. And without adequate resources, without adequate preparation, we're just asking for trouble. So let's, Let's focus in on that for just a second. You said that uh, Congress has uh, authorized the, the spending of $400 uh, million. Um, you mentioned the terms of between two and four billion being necessary. What are the signs that that additional money will be forthcoming? Well, so you have this kind of stalemate between the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, on the one hand, the Democrats are pushing for more than just money. They've called uh, in their proposed legislation for mandatory states to offer mandatory uh, absentee balloting, and not only for November, but forever. Uh, I think that was a mistake. I think the focus should be just on this election, and we shouldn't be trying to make major changes to rules uh, uh, on, on that side. On the other side, you have Republicans who are hearing the message from President Trump that mail-in balloting is, is not safe, and so they're trying to, to um, limit that. Um, and so there's been kind of a stalemate. The reason I have some hope that more money might come through is because you do have state uh, election administrators and local election administrators in solidly red states who are going to their uh, members of Congress and their senators and they're saying, look, the requests for these absentee ballots are coming. Our costs are going way up. We need federal assistance. And so uh, I think it's certainly possible that the money will come through, uh, more money will come through. Whether that money comes through or not, there's going to be a great demand to vote this way. And that means that we run the risk of shoddy election administration because of inadequate resources. And that further can both undermine the fairness of the election itself and undermine the public's confidence in the process. You know, one of the things I'm worried about, and we write about it in the report, uh, and I write about it a little bit in election meltdown is, it takes a long time to count absentee ballots. If there's not enough money to process those ballots, it might be a week or two after the election before we know who the winner of the election is. Uh, and you know, uh, you can imagine a situation in a swing state where one candidate's in the lead on election night and declares victory, and then it's a week later that the ballots are all counted and the other candidate has won. And you know, that is going to create a lot of uh, anger and uncertainty and, you know, in a, in a hotly polarized atmosphere around this presidential election in particular, because Donald Trump seems to be a very polarizing figure. You love him or you hate him. You know, 
we know that 40 something percent of the public at least is going to be very disappointed with the election results in November. And let's not give the people who are disappointed a reason to wonder about whether the election was conducted fairly. Okay, we'll come back to a little more of that in a second, but I want to go back to something else you said. Let's talk about the way this money gets allocated because that's a practical ramifications. Of the $400 million, how does it determine what states get that money and how much of it? So um, first of all, I should say that uh, of the $400 million, uh, it includes a matching provision. So the state has to come up with 20% of the money in order to be able to... Um, uh, to, to access the money. And a lot of states, the state legislatures have not met because, they, uh, because of the pandemic, and so they haven't been able to get the money. So that's been a real problem. Um, in terms of the allocation, it's a formula. It goes through the United States Election Assistance Commission. I think it's based on the size of the state. The population of the state is how the money is divided. Um, so I don't think there's any kind of uh, preference for red states or blue states or anything like that. Um, but the, the match requirement has proven to be an obstacle. And so there's been some lobbying of Congress to drop that match requirement. Okay, and, and I should say the other thing is, the, it's a block grant to be used for election, uh, 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 increased election expenses related to coronavirus. It doesn't say you have to use it for mail-in balloting. It could be for making your polling places safer. You know, hand sanitizers, right. you know, plexiglass, whatever it is you're gonna do to, to do that. Right. Now, getting back to the point you were just making about the slowness of counting, particularly if you have an increased number of mail-in ballots, one of the major, and it seems to me quite significant, recommendations that your committee made um, has to do with the media and media educating voters about the question of the counting process. And um, so that, um, because as you know from, or I suspect most people in the audience um, know that, you know, it's the, the night of a big election and people are often up late waiting to hear who won, who lost. Of course, um, we, uh, we had a particular, we had six weeks um, after the last election until it was determined who, I mean, in the 2000 election to determine who won. Um, but, a but a big part of that is, is if things change, then all of a sudden you're saying that people may become suspicious. And as we know, sometimes that, I mean, in general, changed uh, results don't necessarily mean that there's been fraud. I mean, just for example, in the last congressional race in Orange County in District 45, where I'm now sitting, um, initially the Republican was ahead, and then over the next several days, um, the Democrat, Katie Porter, emerged as the winner. So. Talk a little more about what the media should do and what you think are the prospects of the media doing what you think they ought to do. Right, so this is, was one of, uh, what I consider one of the key recommendations of the report, and it's in the media section of the report. Again, if you wanna see the report, just Google the words fair elections during a crisis, and you'll be able to find the report and pull it up. So uh, here's the issue. Uh, we uh, have, a, especially in cable news, a desire to be first, to be the first ones to call the state. Uh, you know, we've seen enough. We've seen enough ballot returns to be able to call the state. And you'll see sometimes it'll say 100% of precincts have reported. Well, if you're going to have a lot of mail-in ballots uh, and that 100% of precincts reported does not include the number of ballots that are left, um, voters are going to wonder, well, what's going on? Why is it taking so long to give a result or why is the result changing when you've said on election night you have all the ballots. This problem is going to be exacerbated by not only the flood of absentee ballots that we're expecting because of coronavirus, but also because a number of states that are going to be experiencing this flood don't have experience counting this. So California, it already takes us a month to count all the ballots. We already have 60 to 70% of the ballots coming in by mail. There's gonna be more, it's gonna take a long time. Of course, in California, I should say, um, Right now, there's a plan to have everyone be mailed a ballot. Uh, and this is now subject to a lawsuit, which we can talk about. But um, you won't have to request that ballot. It'll just automatically be sent to you. But there's going to be a flood of these ballots. It's going to take time. And one of the things we know, and th this pattern may not hold up given the coronavirus and how that's going to change how people vote for November. One of the things social scientists have noted over the last few elections is that absentee ballots tend to... Uh, shift towards Democrats at the end. 
Democrats tend to vote later than Republicans. So if you're a Republican, you're more likely to th send your vote in two weeks before. And if you're a Democrat, you're going to do it at the last minute. And so this explains uh, in part why there was uh, this, it's called this uh, blue shift, why you saw a number of Southern California congressional races start off with the Republican in the lead. And every night, uh, Neil Kelly, the uh, Orange County Registrar would issue new numbers. And uh, in election after election, including Katie Porter's election, uh, the Democrat overtook the Republican. Okay, so uh, we know that's the pattern. Uh, the problem is that, uh, you know, if uh, the media doesn't adequately explain this, voters are going to hear, say, Donald Trump is in the lead in Pennsylvania, and if he wins Pennsylvania, he's going to win the election. Let's say, you know, comes down to Pennsylvania as the pivotal swing state. And then Trump says, I'm the winner. And he's already cast aspersions on mail-in ballots as fraudulent, and he's already cast aspersions on Philadelphia as a corrupt place. Philadelphia is going to have the most ballots, uh, most uncounted ballots, they're the biggest city in Pennsylvania, heavily Democratic, heavily minority. Those votes are going to come in, and maybe Joe Biden pulls it out after Trump's uh, been in the lead. If the media hasn't conditioned people to believe this, and then Biden becomes the president, I mean, this is one of my nightmare scenarios. Um, is the public going uh, on the Trump side going to accept that? Or are they going to believe that it was fraudulent? What is it going to mean in terms of social protests? Uh, what's it going to mean in terms of legitimacy of the Biden presidency if you've got a large percentage of the public that believes, honestly believes, because of what the president is saying, that the election has been stolen uh, because uh, you know, of these, this shift in ballots? And so we're trying to educate the media now. And I've actually been speaking to people on decision desks, uh, people who are involved in. Uh, coverage of um, these um, uh, decisions, people who call races to talk to them about the message from the media should be too early to call. And no more talking about 100% of precincts reporting. It should be 40% of ballots outstanding, if that's what it is, you know, the number of absentee ballots that are yet to come in. And even on election night, in those states that allow a ballot to be postmarked on election night, it might be that uh, we don't even know how many ballots are outstanding yet you know, at least 40% uh, of ballots outstanding or something like that. So it is my, one of my very top concerns. And I, I, I think the message is starting to get through to the media that there needs to be this kind of education about this potential issue. And isn't that also the problem with that it even can be exaggerated because of the use of polling data exit when people come out to make projections that aren't necessarily accurate? Right, so this is a real question about uh, exit polling, and I'm not an expert in exit polling, but as I understand it, most of the problem last time was not that the exit polls were wrong, but it was that the pre-election polls were, were wrong. And they, they were wrong within their margin of error, but everyone went the wrong way. You know, maybe that was underweighting of non-college educated whites or whatever it was that caused, you know, because when you poll people, everyone's going to say they're going to vote, but we have to kind of predict if they're actually going to vote. And there's often a difference between what all eligible voters say and what those who are likely voters actually do. Exit polling is now being done in a more sophisticated way, including making sure that all those absentee ballot voters are found. And so I think that is a big part of what's going to help. And, and exit polling can actually be validating in the sense to, you know, if it turns out that one candidate has a 3% lead in these more sophisticated exit polls. And in the end of the day, when all the ballots are counted, it's around that, then that is, can be validating. But you're right, it could work the other way, where if the, you know, it's going to be very hard to poll during a pandemic if we still have these problems. It's going to be hard to know, you know, who's voting by mail and all of that, whose ballots are not going to get counted. Um, and so it's, it's a little precarious, but I, you know, I don't know that the alternative is not having exit polling, because we learn a lot from exit polling too. You learn things like, what were the three top issues that people cared about? Was it immigration? Was it healthcare? Was it the economy? And so I think we're going to have that data and hopefully it's going to be more helpful than harmful. Right. So I want to move into um, some of the questions from the audience and, and tie the first question into something that you alluded to before, um, what happened in Wisconsin. And the, and the question one of our audience members poses is, may a state require an in-person election despite the public health threat posed by COVID-19 pandemic stay-at-home orders. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and then talk about what happened in Wisconsin, which went all the way to the Supreme Court. So can, I guess the question is, can a state require an in-person election? Right. 
I, I think the answer is yes. Um, I would say unless the conditions are so dire that people actually cannot vote uh, 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 in this way. And, and I'll talk about Wisconsin in a second, but just today, um, uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit um, uh, overturned a, a, a district court ruling, which had said that Texas's rules that say you can't vote by mail unless you're over 65 or have an excuse and uh, lack of immunity and fear of getting the disease uh, is not an excuse. Uh, the, the, the court said no constitutional problem and it's perfectly fine for Texas, as long as you allow in-person voting, um, no requirement that you offer absentee balloting as well. Um, and I think that's where the courts are going to end up. Um, you would have to show that the balloting, you know, the inability of the state to provide a safe atmosphere is uh, so severe that it's disenfranchising. And I think it's gonna be hard to convince an increasingly conservative judiciary, as we saw from the Fifth Circuit's opinion about this. What do we know about what happened in Wisconsin? Wisconsin, that election was held on April 7th. It was very controversial. At the last minute, the governor tried to cancel it. The legislature rejected it. The state Supreme Court rejected it. Uh, the US Supreme Court got involved because there was a dispute about counting late arriving ballots. It was complicated, we can get into that. Well, here's what we know about voting. Um, people in um, Milwaukee, as I mentioned at the top of our discussion, uh, if they didn't vote by mail, they uh, waited in very long lines. There was a huge racial, racially disparate impact. So uh, although white Democrats voted in large numbers, African-American Democrats voted in much lower numbers, um, part of that is, you know, where in the state, the state Democratic Party was getting the message out and how they could get people to vote. Uh, we know Republican turnout was way down uh, voting by mail because, uh, you know, the president had said, don't do it. And the Republican Party in the state had not really reached out in the same way. I think the lesson that we're going to learn is, despite what the president is saying, both parties are going to try and reach out and have as many people vote by mail as possible. In the, and it's going to be different in every state. It's going to be very hard to do that in Texas. It's going to be a lot easier to do that in uh, uh, the swing states. Uh, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, all have no excuse absentee balloting. So I think there's going to be a push for that. So I don't think, uh, you know, you're going to have a state that, you know, that requires, you know, anyone who's able to, to vote in person. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, to the extent they do, uh, as Texas is trying to do, uh, I don't think there's going to be a way to legally block it. I take it that conversely, um, thinking of another question of audience member asked, is that a state couldn't require that there to be voting just by mail or say curbside drop-off? A state could require, I think, a state, a, a state could require uh, vote by mail unless you could show that, you know, that system was somehow unsafe. You know, I think, I think the state has the choice and that's what five states do. And that's essentially what California is moving towards. Um, uh, I think that doesn't present the same problems, um, uh, you know, as requiring someone to show up physically at a polling place. I, I should say, uh, I'm on the record. I'm not a huge believer in uh, all vote by mail, uh, generally, but I do think that vote by mail under conditions of a pandemic is absolutely essential. I think there are problems with vote by mail, both in terms of the raised risk of fraud, which I still think is relatively small, but still there. And also, as I mentioned earlier, the problem of voters are more likely to have their ballots tossed because they're gonna make a mistake in how they fill out the ballot. And we know this can have a racially disparate impact too. There's a lawsuit in Georgia over Gwinnett County where African-American ballots were much more, voter ballots were much more likely to be tossed out. Um, you know, because people have to make discretionary decisions about accepting ballots. And you know, if you're dealing with a situation where there's a racially discriminatory problem, uh, it's going to reflect in the, in the counting of ballots too. So in terms of the, of the places though, where there are, and there will be in a lot of places still actual voting places, but there are in some places, there have been tremendous reductions in the number of polling places. Is the question of where people can vote and, and how many polling places are, is that solely within the discretion of a local election authority and can it be legally challenged? Well, it used to be that the parts of the country that had a history of racial discrimination in voting had to get approval under the Voting Rights Act for consolidating polling places. That part of the law of the Voting Rights Act was thrown out by the Supreme Court in the Shelby County case in 2013. Uh, it's possible if polling places are closed in a discriminatory way that there could be lawsuits to try to open up polling places. 
Um, but that's a cumbersome thing to do, and it's not always easy. And one of the things we've seen with the pandemic is that polling places are consolidated at the last minute simply because uh, uh, election officials cannot find adequate number of workers. In Chicago, in Illinois, when they were holding their primary during the pandemic, uh, they had to pull people off the street to act as election judges. They were so desperate. So that goes back to your point about the need for advanced planning, which absolutely. seems to be seems to be um, absolutely imperative. Um, let's just say that there are, uh, one of our audience members wants to know something about election rigging and what's done about election rigging. So let's just say, for example, that there's a report that there's somebody leaves a polling place with a bunch of actual ballots, you know, in a box or something like that, and they're not brought to where they're supposed to be brought. Who has the authority to do something about that? Well, that could be both a state crime and a federal crime uh, because we're dealing with a federal election. Um, and let me talk, I, I meant to mention this earlier about ballot harvesting because this is a topic I get asked about a lot. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it relates back to the, to the uh, 45th Congressional District. So let's talk about ballot harvesting. So uh, that, that's a kind of a pejorative term. Uh, maybe a more neutral term is third-party collection of ballots. Here's the issue. If you are um, uh, trying to encourage your voters to vote by absentee ballot, can you come to their house and say, hey, why don't you vote your ballot now? I'll take it from you and I'll, I'll turn it in. Mm -hmm. uh, in California, since 2017, that's completely legal. In North Carolina, where we had that controversy I talked about, it's illegal. You, if you're not a family member, you can't touch someone else's ballot. In a place like Colorado, where they have all-mail uh, balloting, you can collect up to 10 ballots. I don't think ballot harvesting itself is uh, um, uh, somehow unethical or uh, somehow wrong. The problem with ballot harvesting is that it, it facilitates the ability to do something wrong. So in North Carolina, in order to tamper with the ballots, you first had to get the ballot out of people's hands. Um, and so uh, I think that it raises, ballot harvesting raises the risk that someone's going to destroy ballots or tamper with ballots. So I would favor in California moving to a system where we have a, uh, limit on how many ballots can be collected. Making sure that in places where people might have difficulty turning in their ballots, for example, nursing homes or Native American reservations where there's not easy access to the U.S. mail, that there are exceptions built in or, or safeguards uh, built in. But I should be clear, despite the fact that um, Republicans have claimed fraud in rigging due to ballot harvesting in California, absolutely no evidence that any ballots were tampered with. And in fact, until the president started talking about this, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican uh, leader, had been saying that Republican Party in California needs to do more ballot harvesting because they need to catch up with Democrats because de what Democrats are doing is they're going out door to door and they're trying to bank their votes, get their early vote in, and they're trying to do it by mail. So understand what they're trying to do. Uh, it's raising a lot of suspicions. It, it is not in itself wrongful, but it, anytime ballots are out of the hands of election officials, we need to be on guard. And I should say, uh, back to rigging, there's, an, there's a ballot um, tampering uh, controversy brewing in Patterson, New Jersey right now. And there is, uh, it's very hard to hide one of these conspiracies. Uh, and there's, uh, there's calls for a recount, there's calls for a new election. When these things happen, they tend to be found out. If there's any organized effort to do this, it requires a conspiracy among a number of people. And usually this is found out. How did they find out in Patterson, New Jersey? Because people said, I never got my ballot. Or you're showing me in the records as though I voted. I never voted. And so we find these things out. And uh, law enforcement can take steps to prevent it. And it could be either state or federal law enforcement? Yes, especially if you're dealing with a federal election. Absolutely. And if one side, want, and, and if the state officials wanted to do something and the federal didn't? Well, I, you know, the, this is what happened in North Carolina in 2016. Uh, uh, in the 2016 election, the same guy that was involved in that 2018 fraud was accused by state officials of engaging in the same activity. And they went to the uh, U.S. attorney in the Eastern District and tried to get an investigation and they were unsuccessful. Um, that was an exercise of prosecutorial discretion, I guess, or a lack of resources or lack of interest. And then we had a, this controversy two years later. Um, one other question, and then I'm going to turn it back to Veronica. A member of the audience wants to know, would it be possible for the Congress to make a law saying that all national elections for representatives, senators, and the president and vice president are to be by mail-in ballot? 
So could Congress require all mail-in balloting? I think the answer for federal elections, I think the answer is yes. Um, in Article One, Section Four of the Constitution, it provides that states set the time, place, and manner uh, the, the, the the manner of conducting uh, congressional elections, um, subject to congressional override. This is the same authority that lets uh, Congress pass laws like the National Voter Registration Act, which requires states to require to accept a registration from uh, using a federal form or require offering voter registration opportunities at, at departments of motor vehicles and public assistance agencies, et cetera. So yes, it could happen. I don't expect we're gonna see it, but it could happen theoretically. Actually, one final question before I turn it back to Veronica. And I realize, as I believe it was Yogi Berra said, it's impossible to predict the future. But if you had to, what do you think are the odds that this year's presidential election will wind up in front of the Supreme Court? Well, I think the odds are pretty low. This is the only way I'm able to sleep at all at night because <laughs> the only reason these things are go, the, the only way that's going to happen is if the election is so close in the electoral college that the stuff's really going to matter. There may be pre-election issues before uh, the Supreme Court over various rules, but that would mean we have a, a very, very close election, a close election contest. If that happens, yes, I do think the Supreme Court would get involved. But you know, just like you prepare for the small risk of a nuclear meltdown if you run a power plant, uh, we have to prepare for the small risk of an election meltdown uh, uh, in November. Thank you, Rick. And now I'm gonna turn it back to Veronica for any additional questions and wrap up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Rick, um, thank you for addressing ballot harvesting because we did have several questions and concerns about that. And I think you uh, responded to those questions. Um, following up on the pending litigation in the state of California, as you know, the Republican National Party and others have filed several federal lawsuits to block the governor's recent executive order uh, from serving all voters in the state in it for the state mail-in ballots for the general election, arguing it's unconstitutional and invites voter fraud. Uh, there's going to be a preliminary injunction hearing on July 16th. They're trying to move up the scheduling right now as, as we speak. What's your thinking of how that, that case is gonna go? Yeah, so uh, there are essentially two arguments raised in the lawsuit. The first is that the governor doesn't have the authority to uh, order that every voter be sent a mail-in ballot. Um, and the the constitutional hook for this, the reason they're in federal court rather than in state court claiming, you know, a, a state separation of powers issue is they're claiming that the, that same part of the constitution that gives um, states the power to set the rules for congressional elections subject to congressional override applies to state legislatures and the governor is not the legislature. I think that aspect of the case, while they raise some arguments that, that, could, that, that could be meritorious, um, is uh, going to be mooted because the state legislature, which is heavily democratic, is already on its way to approving similar kind of legislation. So I think that's going to be, um, that claim that the legislature doesn't want it or the legislature hasn't authorized it is going to disappear. The other claim, which is that um, uh, this will provide a basis for fraud, uh, allowing fraud in the elections, thereby uh, diluting the votes of legitimate voters and disenfranchising them. I don't think that has a strong uh, argument uh, for two reasons. Uh, number one, and we saw a case like this, there was, a, there was the same kind of challenge to all male election primary in Nevada. Uh, and the court said, where's your evidence of fraud? Uh, so I think, well, you know, one issue is uh, uh, there's not enough evidence that sending ballots to uh, every voter is going to uh, lead to uh, fraudulent conduct. Uh, and the other is just generally, uh, the courts show a lot of um, deference to the decisions of how states decide to run their elections. And that was one of the messages that came out in this Fifth Circuit case today, that federal court should not be micromanaging the, the details of elections. So I don't think it's likely that the lawsuit's gonna go forward, but I do wanna mention one other thing, the difference between this Nevada lawsuit and the California lawsuit. And there's a lot of misinformation about this, in part because I think the governor did a bad job announcing what they're doing. He said, we're sending a ballot to every registered voter. And the truth is there are probably millions of people on the California voting rolls who are no longer eligible. They're dead or they are, they've moved. In fact, they're not sending it to every registered voter. They're sending it only to active registered voters, uh, which are people who voted in the la within the last few elections. If you're an inactive voter, so you haven't voted in a while, you're put in a different pile, those people are not getting sent ballots. So it's not as though you're great aunt who's been dead for 20 years is gonna get a ballot sent to your address that you could then go out and vote. 
which would of course be a crime. But so I, I think people should have less concern about sending all of these ballots. And, and you know, I'm not generally in favor of sending ballots to everyone, but given the pandemic and given the backlog that we're seeing in states where you have to request the ballot and have it sent back to you, I think it's a reasonable choice to make at this point. I think another issue that's raised um, is can the United States Post Office address this? Are there internal and external pressures that we could have problems, especially from the Trump administration? What's your thinking on that? So vote by mail requires a working post office. Now, it's not true that everyone returns their ballots by mail. Some people put them in drop boxes, depending on what the state allows, or dropping them at, at vote centers. But yes, we need a working post office. But we recognize in our report, Fair Elections During a Crisis, that you can't just depend on vote by mail. And if we have to all get online because uh, we're not getting our ballots, then, you know, then that's what we'll have to do. Uh, and so I certainly hope we have a functioning post office. I think it's in the interest of uh, the country and it's the interest of bipartisan members of Congress to keep the post office working. So far, we've seen no political interference signs at the post office with ballots. I certainly hope it will stay that way. Uh, it would be quite a scandal if, you know, they were slow handling of ballots or anything like that. Um, but we have to be prepared with a plan B and a plan C and a plan D because as, you know, who could have predicted what the last three months would have looked like in the United States? I mean, just unprecedented. No so we've got to think about all these things. And we haven't even mentioned this. Um, Henry didn't get to this uh, question, but in my book, I talk about what if we have a cyber attack on election day or terrorist attack or a hurricane or an earthquake? We've got to, all of these things can happen. There's no, you know, we, we haven't exhausted all the possibilities. So we need to be planning for all eventualities because we have to hold the election in November. No. And what, what's your sense of the impact the George Floyd situation is going to have on the election? Well, so, uh, you know, one of the concerns I have is um, people feeling safe going to polling places. And this was uh, a concern yesterday, uh, or Tuesday, I should say, when people were going to polling places under conditions of curfew where there are military vehicles in the streets. I mean, really a scene not out of something you would expect to see uh, in the United States. And so... Um, uh, you know, social unrest, uh, military response, uh, mil uh, uh, police response. It could affect turnout. It could affect people's ability to, you know, to get to places, right? To be able to, to, to get to a polling place and be able to vote. I think it's very hard to know, but it's yet another stress on our system. Um, uh, you know, one of the answers that we're hearing to, you know, what, what's the first step we should be taking to deal with uh, the crisis that uh, the um, uh, the George Floyd situation uh, has brought uh, forth for everyone is go and vote. But we have to ensure that people can safely vote on election day. And, and that's going to require cooperation with law enforcement and election officials and, and people being able to get to the polling places and cast their ballots. In, in addition for people voting, since we do have several months before the election, what would what you consider, and I'll ask Henry the same question, a call to action. What what should people be doing now that, that we make sure that we have a valid election and it does not go to the Supreme Court? Yeah. So so one of the things uh, is um, make sure you're registered to vote. Make sure that everyone you know is registered to vote and that your voter registration is accurate. Uh, if you have to request an absentee ballot and you want to vote that way, you should request it as soon as you're allowed to. But the other point I'd make, and, and I'll, I'll I'll turn this to Henry, is uh, because we have such a decentralized election system, that means that it's the local election administrators who have a lot of power. Uh, you can go to those people. You can send an email. You can call the office. Ask them, uh, you know, what's your plan for uh, transparency? How are you going to conduct this election safely? You know, and a lot of uh, places, a lot of election administrators are, are putting their plans online now. Put the pressure on those people to make sure they're thinking through all the eventualities and they have a enough resources. If they don't have enough resources, go to your local uh, representatives, go to your uh, state and congressional representatives and demand that there be adequate funding for our elections. I would agree with everything Rick just said. And one additional thing, if you're somebody that's already registered and you are contemplating then asking uh, to vote by absentee, make sure that you know for sure how you've signed your name in the first place so that there won't be any dispute about whether it is actually your vote when they're matching it up. 
Unfortunately, we are out of time, and I know, uh, Rick, you have another um, appearance in a few minutes. I want to thank you both um, for an exceptional conversation. Ian Richardson, the same too, and the full staff at UCI Law School. And for the audience, thank you so much for joining us today. And until the next symposium, stay safe. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.